in order to get like truly amazing things, you, you actually do need to be irresponsible. Th this person should be given an award. There was literally a DARPA director who went before Congress, asked for DARPA's budget to be cut. Because the thing is that the more money you give an organization, the more expectations you have from them. The more pressure mounts, the less risky projects you'll undertake. Hello and welcome to China Talk. What's so special about Bell Labs and why don't they build corporate research like they used to? What's broken about research and development and academia and venture-backed startups? How does this all connect back to the Endless Frontier Act? What makes And what makes DARPA so special? To discuss, Ben Reinhardt joins the show. He has a PhD in space robotics, spent time, spent time at Magic Leap and in Singapore at an incubator, is currently an independent researcher exploring how institutions foster innovation or not, and his dream is to start an independent DARPA. So, Ben, what are the kind of highlight achievements of mid-20th century corporate research organizations? So, just to start, everything that you're probably listening to this on has many transistors in it. Transistors are attributable directly to Bell Labs. On top of that, we are recording this using a personal computer, which is attributable to Xerox Park, also a corporate lab. But in addition to that, all of the plastics probably came from, from corporate labs. And then we have everything from... Like cellular technology to, I'm just like literally looking around the room. Like cellular technology, actually light bulbs were for the most part developed in corporate labs. Yeah. So it, and the list just goes, goes on and on. So it's, yeah. So why did that stop happening? Why are corporate labs, aside from like DeepMind and a few sort of AI related projects, not delivering at the pace and scale that they were in the 20th century? I, I think it comes down to uh, a combination of changes in the dominant technologies and changes in the the structure of business. Corporate labs, as far as I, I can tell, depend on monopoly-like profits to give them the sort of the leeway to what I would call piddle around to actually discover really good things. And in the sort of later 70s, early 80s, there's a combination of globalization, financial trouble, pressure from shareholders to really focus on, on their knitting that made companies not, like, amped up the competition, made companies specialize. The technologies that corporate labs were working on in the 20th century became commoditized. And so you, that as something as like a class of technology becomes commoditized, you just, your profit margins go down and you can't, and there's like more pressure on the researchers to deliver, which backfires and, and makes everything less efficient. And so to your point about DeepMind, if you'll notice all the like corporate labs that seem to like really be crushing it happen to be run by software companies who have near monopoly profits, right? So you have Google, Facebook AI research is doing pretty well. And the work of the corporate lab is really aligned with like the core product. If you notice what's going on in, in a lot of other corporate labs, it's like, they're cool projects, but they're like, okay, what does this have to do with the core business of the company? And so there's this like misalignment that happens there. So anyway, that was, there's, the, the upshot is that there are like many reasons and it's unclear which one is like the dominant factor. Ben, what's the idea maze and how does that connect back to the demise of corporate R&D? So the idea is a, a metaphor for anytime you're going through a, a process where you need to make a lot of decisions that are irreversible 
and you don't really know what the outcome is going to be. It's originally in the context of startups where do you go sell to consumers or directly to to consumers or to businesses? It's like, do you do a SaaS model or do you do like single time sales? There's a whole series of decisions that you need to go through. And this is Balaji Srivasanan coined the term, the idea maze to describe this. And you could visualize a maze where you're making a, a series of decisions. And it relates to the demise of corporate research because basically like I, I would argue that corporate R&D now does not give the resources to both start, go through and complete the maze. What other corners of research which don't which aren't quite delivering what humanity wants academia uh, you write that the academic model is built around scientific inquiry and academics are rewarded for moving up the ladder of abstraction as opposed to engineering design and actually bringing products to the world yeah that's yeah that i think that is that's not necessarily a problem with academia right that's just like academia's function is to do this one thing, but then we keep demanding of it to deliver useful products. But just like all of the incentive structures aren't set up to do that. The incentive structures are to focus on like novelty and to basically come up with the most generalizable theory that you can. But what like a really general theory does not a product make. Yeah. So academia, it you get, and also it's all about it's all about credit, right? So. The, the more people you have on a paper, the less, quote-unquote, credit units everybody gets. And at the end of the day, making, like, good, n- not even products, but just, like, working systems takes a lot of people. And people in, ac- in academia are just not incentivized to do that. So what often happens is that they'll create a proof of concept and say, look... It can be done, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done after that. The sort of relative lack of emphasis on engineering design, I thought was really interesting. You, yeah. you talk a little bit about how, where that gap is in academia. Yeah. It's just, yeah, the, there's, so like when, like when you're doing engineering design, you start with, okay, here's the, all the possibility space of things I could do. And I need to like narrow this down to say, we need to do this one specific thing and there's just the no that doesn't get published. So if you went and like the the ridiculous example would be like that you you created a working nuclear fusion plant, but you couldn't describe the general principles that you used to do it. That would not be able to get pu- published, and people like people would not want to do that. It's a li- that's obviously ridiculous, but to give that example, is that sort of tell me more about what about engineering design? Oh, I guess the sort of the like drive to novelty above all else. Yeah, is also yeah, that, that's the, and, and that really is true. Is I don't know how many times I've heard something. I've just been like talking about an idea to a professor. And they say, oh, yeah, like, that's been done. And it's like, okay, if it's been done, like, where is it? <laughs> Why can't I use it? And, like, this is the, the intensely frustrating thing. And so they're, and then their academia is not set up to make that happen. So startups and the, v- the sort of broader VC ecosystem, why aren't they delivering really exciting innovations broader than outside of like strictly the software space? 
Yeah. So like to tie back into the academia piece, I think a common conception is like, oh, it's not, it's actually fine that academia will only take something to proof of concept because then you spin it out into a startup and you're off to the races and we've solved the innovation pipeline and we're good to go. But what like startups, especially like VC funded startups are under a, a different set of constraints where in order for VCs to really make a return, they need to believe that any single company that they invest in could return like a hundredfold or more on their money, which means that like from day one, uh, VC-backed companies need to have a plan for how they get huge. And in engineering design, you need to like, there's still a lot of like experimentation that needs to go on and a lot of just piddling around that you just cannot afford as when you like need to be constantly growing. And so like these, the necessity of the piddling around to actually do the engineering design that's not being done in academia and the need to grow really quickly are at odds. And so that's why, so one that constrains a lot of things out of existing. And then just to the the point about software, software has like really good economics because the capital cost is almost zero. And so if you can invest in something with zero capital cost, or you can invest in something with non-zero capital cost, and they're both going to give you the same return, you're going to invest in the thing with no capital cost. So <laughs> that's the argument. There, obviously, there are VCs that do invest in things that aren't software, but they're extremely specialized. And there's only a sort of a small subset of hardware that they can reasonably go after. I did like your line that you can do big, complex engineering products But as long as they look like something that have been done before, so like a telescope or a particle accelerator, like that's fine because there's a model and it's like legible to the, you know, broader funding ecosystem. But anything crazier than that, not just like a 2x bigger, faster, better version of what already exists, has a really hard time making it through the system. Yeah. And I guess I'm not quite like, it's it's interesting to ask why that is not completely clear. I think it's just like, Science funders, my my theory is that like basically all science funding is implicitly or explicitly done by committee. And the thing things that committees are really good at is preventing downside risk. And they do this by basically like slicing off the tails of the distribution. So they won't do anything weird. And so imagine if you're like the first person to fund a particle accelerator and people are like, what the, what the heck is a particle accelerator? So I think that's what we're seeing there. So now we come to the valley of death. What is it and what dies there? Uh, So the value of death is uh, a term for the things that I would describe as too researchy for startups, as we just discussed, and too engineering heavy for academia. And it is, and, and so basically it's this gap where it doesn't make sense to build a startup around it. Or if you do build a startup around it, it's it's probably not going to do that well. And any work that's done on it in academia is going to produce some papers, but it's not going to actually push the technology forward. So that's, and I won't talk about TRLs, but what's that? Oh, technology readiness. Another way to think of it is that there's this system called technology readiness levels that NASA and believe the military use to talk about technology and TRL three is a proof of concept. TRL seven is a fully functioning, full prototype system. And the value of death is like somewhere between those. And so a lot of 
technologies that require like real research to build systems before it even makes sense to think about a product, especially like general purpose technologies tend tend to fall into the valley of death. Gotcha. So we're recording this on May 18th. Endless Frontier has passed cloture. The uh, tech directorate, which we talked about last week, is now a shell of its former self going from $100 billion over five years now to uh, three or four billion dollars over five years. It is a dramatic change in the authorization of funding. Ben, I'm curious, what was your ideal for what this new tech initiative, which was supposed to be housed within the National Science Foundation, what, what was your vision for the best possible scenario of what this national, what this new tech initiative within the National Science Foundation could could achieve in addressing some of the issues that we've talked about in the sort of degradation of corporate R and D and the inability of academia or venture backed startups to deliver the kind of, to, to bring the changes from the lab to to the bedroom. I like the bedroom. It's, that's where your most intimate technology goes. So I want to preface this with, I didn't really have a, a vision. I don't know where you could, I, I don't think that there's, I, I guess like the vision is that there is no one place that you can stick a hundred billion dollars and have it be useful. And so the like, the thing that I will cry from the rooftops is that, we just need more uncorrelated experiments. So instead of spent, like the thing that is, is, if you spend all the money in the same way that you have been spending the money before, you literally just go down the list of projects that would have been funded. And instead of funding the top five, you fund the top 10. And so you're just funding five more worse projects of the same type. So what I like, instead of saying this is how it should be spent, I would would have wanted more uncorrelated experiments of just, oh, Jose, who was on the podcast, just has a list of like crazy things that, that we could try. And ideally the money would be spent on things that frankly, I, I think would make a lot of people uncomfortable. But the fact of the matter is that if you look at history, the ways that we've gotten new technology have, and the people who have done it have like consistently made people uncomfortable. So let's throw out yeah. one or two. Or what are your two favorites? Oh, my two favorites. Oh, if I'm if I'm remembering this correctly, the guy who isolated who who created synthetic insulin or isolated it from dogs. I'm not sure the exact story, but like he couldn't get a lab, and so he had to break into a lab in order to like do the experiments to distill the insulin from dog pancreases. I think there's a story about him like literally having to like, crawl on like the ledge of a building and break in. I don't think that I'm making all of that up. That's one example. Another is that we could just take take our favorite example, Elon Musk, right? Everybody just like, everybody, including myself, called him a crazy millionaire who was just like throwing away money, doing stupid, like blowing up stupid rockets for years, right? now, And now everybody's, all excited about SpaceX, but it was like, everybody thought it was a terrible idea. The The NSF would never have funded it. And, oh, oh, and let's look at the vaccines that so many of us have. The I'm for, blanking on her name, but the woman who was really instrumental in creating RNA vaccines could not get funding for years and years, right? Yeah, and I, so, do, I do find it pretty obnoxious that the NSF is trying to claim credit for it when this is something <laughs> that could have existed 
15 years earlier yeah. had had they written her a check. Yeah, exactly. And it, yeah, and so it's like these things were, I think universities have also, like universities who like kicked her out also claim credit. But it's if the NSF wouldn't give her money then, why would the NSF with more money give her, like she wasn't like rejected because she was like six, like they, they had five slots and she was the sixth. They rejected her because it was like too weird. Yeah. So those are just some examples. So the institution of space funding in America, you hinted at Elon Musk. What is what doesn't work with the way I don't know. I don't even know where to start. Like what isn't right with how American (laughs) space institutions fund change? So like the joke I like to make is that so because NASA is under the executive office, they make 10 year plans that change every eight years. For a very specific reason. And so if, if you look back over the past, since Bush. So Bush said, we're going to Mars. And they started building a whole bunch of systems to Mars. And all the NASA engineers are like, yeah. And then Obama comes in and he's like, no, we're going to an asteroid. We're going to capture an asteroid. And then all of NASA reorients around capturing an asteroid. And then Trump comes in and he's like, no, we're going back to Mars. Oh no, maybe Bush was to the moon. Anyway, and then, so Trump's out and Biden's back in and now we're going back to the moon again. And so every time, it's not like you can just take the one rocket and point it at different places unless, so the thing that SpaceX is doing right is they're actually building a rocket that you can take and point in different places. But the way that NASA's been doing it is that they build very specialized hardware for uh, very specialized missions. And on top of that, the way that they decide who builds what part of the the entire system where is dictated by the congress people who hold the purse strings so they'll say well, i'll fund this if you build part of it in my district and so you end up with this like this frankenstein org structure and piece of technology that uh, that ends up with the sls that we have now the the space launch system which if you pay any attention to it, it is just one failed test after another. Like, I think in the time that SpaceX launched three or four starships and, like, actually got it to land, they test-fired the engines for SLS once. Which is unfortunate. So, how do we fix space? Again, I don't know. I'm really hesitant to, to propose broad solutions. It's, and, and I want to propose small steps. I think, that, so, one thing that NASA has done really well, I want to, let's give credit where credit is due. The commercial launch program has been really great, right? Like, uh, SpaceX would not exist without NASA giving them money. So, I, I really do actually want to call that out. I think more of that, more of NASA as... Uh, goal setter, funder, and like uh, market maker almost. There's this thing called advanced market commitments where effectively NASA can say, if you build a thing to this spec, we will pay this much money for it. Mm-hmm. And that is amazing for for the system because what it does is it then lets startups and other people go to funders and instead of having to make something up, they can say, look, if we do this, NASA is right sitting there with a checkbook and all we can have to hit these targets, like no questions asked. So get rid of cost plus contracting and just say, we will pay this much money for, for this spec and do a lot more of that, I think would be a step in the right direction. Gotcha. DARPA, 
Let's talk a little bit about its track record. What what does it have under its belt? Oh, man. GPS satellites, stealth technology, the internet, which was originally named ARPANET, personal computing, most of modern robotics, miniaturized, like the GPS that's in your phone, like the vaccine again. DARPA funded some of the early work on RNA vaccines. Should I keep going? Surgery robots. Yeah. The list, those, and those are just the things that I have cached at the top of my tired head. Let's do a brief history of its institutional evolution. Yeah. 19, 1958, Sputnik is launched by the Soviet Union. Dwight Eisenhower wants to do something. They quickly scramble together this, this government organization that is just meant to do all sorts of, of weird special projects. And basically, they're just given like carte blanche to do a bunch of weird stuff. And the well-known early programs from NASA were in personal computing led by JCR Licklitter, which was originally just because the the early warning systems were so terrible that they like would see like the light would reflect funny and make it seem like there is a incoming barrage of nuclear missiles and almost lead to nuclear war. So they wanted to stop that, but he did a lot of other stuff. There was a lot of other weird stuff figuring out like, oh, if we nuke the atmosphere, will it create a cloud of radiation that will destroy incoming missiles? So they actually went out in the middle of the the South Atlantic and nuked the atmosphere. We don't hear as much about that. And so over time, they did a lot of projects and, and a lot of really good early work. Basically, DARPA is responsible for most of the computer science departments in the United States. Eventually, like they they the Vietnam War happens. In 1972, there's a Oh, and so DARPA is set up in to it, with this like really weird structure where there are these program managers who basically get as soon as they convince the director that they have a reasonable idea, which literally can be a 10-minute meeting. They have like tens of millions of dollars to just distribute however they want. 1972, a lot of reforms around military spending are passed. What was called ARPA, Advanced Research Projects Agency, is renamed DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And it its scope is tightened to things that have direct military application, which is still a vast array of things from medicine to robotics to to any kind of electronics and it's like darpa has had its fingers in really every major technological change in one way or another like they they really pushed the semiconductor industry they yeah and so over time yeah i guess that's is is there anything like and and so just like they and so since 1972 they've they've really the i guess the extraordinary thing is that they've managed to consistently fund and put make hits happen over the course of many decades, which is very rare and very surprising. Why? How? Huh. That, that is, again, that's the several billion dollar question. But my, like, I would argue that a lot of it has to do with the fact, with, with the fact that program managers are allowed to do things that other people are not so they're willing like they can sorry let me back up i think that it's a combination of empowered program managers who can basically just like they they don't have to go through a bureaucracy and at the same time it has to do with coordination that would not happen otherwise so you actually have someone 
who really gets it and is, is technically trained with a strong hypothesis of the steps that technology needs to go through to actually become a a useful thing as opposed to just like a, a proof of concept. Well, let's talk about the magic of the program managers for a second. Yes, please. So they're, they're not magical. They're real people. I've met them. They're great. But the like the program managers, they, they basically just get these like extreme badasses. They can be from, uh, so some of them are, are professors. Some of them are, are from industry, but they get people who are able to see the big picture, but at the same time, understand technical details and really put like I'm making scare quotes, but do the program design to say, okay, if we can do this piece and this piece, figure out what are the puzzle pieces? What could you assemble with them? What work needs to be done both to build the missing puzzle pieces and to put them together and then go and make that happen. And they have a lot of leeway to do that without asking uh, a lot of permission. I like the idea of creating networks, but not just plugging into ones that already exist. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So there's this idea. I, I called it focused network building, but there. So like research has become extremely specialized, right? So people who like work with one kind of laser will feel uncomfortable talking about something that to anybody else in the world looks exactly the same, but is with a different laser. And they're like, that's not my my area anymore. But then you also notice that so many new awesome things come from like collisions of ideas. So what program managers will often do is convene these workshops where they get together a bunch of people who actually can all contribute to the same problem, but may not know each other. So for example, like you would have like, a, a video game designer in a room with a roboticist in the room with a like a, a machine learning expert in the room with a psychologist and you can start to imagine like what could come out of that but those people there's they just don't run into each other in their professional lives and so the program managers have this like big picture of who could contribute bring those people together and stir the pot can you drill down a little bit on what makes DARPA different from the Bell Labs and Skunk Works of the world? Yeah, I think besides the fact that it's run by the, the government, I think the biggest difference is that DARPA doesn't do research. DARPA is tiny. It has around 100 program managers and a whole bunch of contracting support, like a, a bunch of support staff. But the program managers themselves, they're like only levers is spending money. And so they go and they give grants or contracts to academic labs or private companies, as opposed to Bell Labs or Skunk Works, where the majority of the work is done by employees of Bell Labs or Skunk Works in-house. And both like both of those have straight like different strengths and weaknesses. And but like the primary difference is internalized versus externalized work. Just today, Senator Sass submitted an amendment to double DARPA's budget. Does that no. make sense? No, it doesn't. It, it really doesn't. There was literally a DARPA director who went before Congress. This person should be given an award. They went to before Congress and asked for DARPA's budget to be cut. Because the thing is that the more money you give an organization, the more expectations you have from them. And the, like, the, the more pressure mounts, then the less risky projects you'll undertake. So 
A, or so I, I would expect DARPA to almost be like crushed under this amount of money. And it's, it's so much less about the amount of money and more about how you can deploy it. I just, do, do you know what's going through people's heads when they just think, oh, we're just, we'll just spend more money on a thing? In Congress? Yeah. Presumably they're just like, this is what works. Let's see if we can get 2x of it working. But like, that's, I feel like that's not how, that's not, not how economics works, right? Well, well, here's it. Maybe we'll turn that into a broader question. Do you have any idea of what, where the Pareto frontier is for like national R&D dollars, be that research or development? So the thing is that like the dividing line between what is the dividing line between research, which is this like exploration, like unscheduled thing and development, which is like, okay, we have like deadlines. We can really target things is like, you have to go back and forth because like you're doing development and then all of a sudden you realize this like problem that you have to do research on and then you do some research and you need to, to do some development. So it's really just like a big cycle and saying, okay, we're going to give this money for research. This money for development is... I think just uh, a little silly, but the Pareto front is like in terms of, I don't think that there's a Pareto front in terms of a number. I think the Pareto front is in terms of what activities are we enabling and what activities don't get enabled. And the thing that I see in my soapbox is that it's much more important to enable more different activities than it is to enable more of the same activities, namely like academically incentivized work or, yeah, which is like what the majority of federal dollars are going towards. Yeah. How is sci-fi underutilized? I like being a giant nerd. I think that it's, I think that it could actually really be used as a, a tool for thought. Right now people say, oh yeah, it could be like a big vision, but you can almost use sci-fi as, I think of it as like a case study from the future where unlike these like very one-dimensional predictions of AI is going to do X, um, sci-fi explores a world in which there is AI. And instead of saying AI will do X, it's like unpacks all of the secondary effects and helps you think about it because it, with just like a straight up prediction, you can't really poke any of the pieces. But if you've ever hung out with a bunch of geeks that like twiddling with doing like what if on sci-fi is really easy. So I think it just gives people a better way to, to think about the future. And then also it's a way of just like developing much more concrete visions as opposed to we're going to do something cool with graphite. It really helps to say, okay, we're going to try to build like this this particular kind of jet from this sci-fi series book recs sci-fi book recs i've just been reading to like the lightning by ada palmer it is freaking amazing it is the one sci-fi book i've seen that presents a really plausible scenario for what a post nation state world looks like and it's just really well written there's all the old classics everybody should read like foundation dune most of heinlein i especially like the moon is a harsh mistress others the culture series is one of the few that present a almost like plausible optimistic future yeah i think those those so those are the sci-fi off the top of my head all right nonfiction. 
Nonfiction. Pasteur's Quadrant. I am a really big fan of Loon Shots by Safi Bakal. There's this book called Cycles of, Innov- of Invention and Discovery, which presents a much better framework than basic and applied R&D. The Idea Factory from About Bell Labs is pretty incredible. So like Vannevar Bush's autobiography is actually really good. It, I believe it's called A Piece of the Action. Michael Nielsen's Reinventing Discovery is great. I'm just thinking of the ones that like I keep going back to. Yeah, I think that's a good list. Oh, yeah. Anything else? I think I'm really interested in your thought about the best way. Like, what is the theory of change behind writing policy papers? And how do we, like, how does the endless frontier not end up in the way that it is right now? Like, this feels like a, a little bit like, oh, this, of course this was going to happen. So how does that not happen? How, how do we, get, what do we do to make that not happen? I don't know. I'm really bummed. It's... This is quote unquote anti-China research, like an anti-China type research bill is, I think uh, Senator Rubio had a, or Marco Rubio had a good line. He was like, look, if we can't come together and pass a bipartisan bill about anti-China competitiveness, like we should probably put the Senate out of business because then we really can never do anything. It's unfortunate, but it's this is how democracy works is there are interest groups and you know, there are the regional players who want to make sure that there are folks in the, in the House and, and Senate who want to make sure that their states get funding. And it makes sense that they would be more comfortable with the putting money towards a system which already does that, in particular for New Mexico and the labs which are there, which are the main beneficiaries of the extra tens of billions of dollars which are going their way as opposed to this new organization. Though that said, the idea of setting up a new organization and all of a sudden throwing it $20 million in its first year is a uh, is an aggressive one to be, to be sure, particularly when this is in a sort of space as you, that you said where smaller amounts of money can go an incredibly long way. So the idea of spreading out bets, I don't think is terrible. There are lots of players who have the ear of Congress from those former NSF presidents to university presidents who, who lobbied in particular to, to make sure that more of their money was going, was going into funding streams that they feel confident that they can take advantage of going forward. It's interesting because one thought that occurred in some like sort of One thought that came to mind for me was like, okay, if we're going to create this NSF structure, is there something that we want to subtract from the the kind of research ecosystem? Maybe I'll throw this one back at you. Like, what do you think should not exist, um, Ben? Oh, I'm going to make so many people hate me. Like, university administrations should be gone. I think, like, a lot of the work that national labs do is really like make work. I, I like frankly I, I think the whole thing just needs to be like scaled down. The like I think it was Michael Nielsen who really did propose the thought experiment of could we get better research if we just cut the money? Like literally just like less money, what happens? And and like everybody who is a scientist who applies for grants, uh, pl- like please don't hate me. It's not <laughs> it's like I, I really do want people to do good research, but as an ecosystem, there, there's an argument that just like the competitive pressures are like crowding things out. How so? In that, so there's this paper called The Decline of Unfettered Research that basically makes the argument that the more money we put into research and the more people there are, the more it becomes a commodity 
and like, and we like expect consistent results, but by expecting consistent results, we kill the thing that is at the core of research, which is like this, like high variance, like discovery. Whoa, look at this thing. Cause it's, if you know that you have to deliver something in three months, you're not going to work on the weird project. You're going to work on the thing that you can deliver in three months. I think so. So getting ready. Oh, get rid of reporting requirements. Get rid, get rid of accountability. <laughs> <laughs> what are reporting requirements? Oh, yeah. Just like whenever you get a federal grant, you have to tell them exactly what you're spending all the money for. And every semester or every reporting period, whatever that is, you have to say exactly how much money you spent, exactly what you spent it for. And... If you don't or you screw that up or you spend it on the wrong thing, they take your money away. And very often it's required that you spend most of the money on grad students, which propagates a whole other problem. So get rid of decouple research funding from this idea of like training America's research workforce, which like I see, you see that rhetoric all the time. And so it's like, why, why decouple it? Yeah. Because what ends up happening is that all the money gets earmarked for grad students and that incentivizes people to do grad student heavy research, which makes it so that nobody will invest in building research tools, makes there be too many grad students. So now you have, a, if you look at the, the number of grad students versus professor positions, it's the number of grad students is increasing exponentially. The number of professor positions is basically holding constant. And so you have all these people just like, and that ramps up that competitive pressure that we were just talking about. Sorry. So <laughs> it's this like very no, this is great. complex. It's this very complex system that's all feeding on itself. And and it's just, yeah. So the really awkward thing is that all these things I'm saying to cut, they exist for a reason, right? Like the reporting requirements re- exist because at the end of the day, it's taxpayer money. It's like your money and my money technically. And like, I don't want the government to be irresponsible with my money. But at the same time, I would argue that in order to get like truly amazing things, you you actually do need to be irresponsible. Gotcha. We try to be irresponsible here on the China Talk podcast. Ben Reinhardt, thanks so much. This was such a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. Thanks, Jordan. Yeah, 
说不透我的痛，就算你感觉很 lonely， 脑子里面装的都是你不敢想的东西。我的兄弟们负担大，我消防队也不能扑灭。没钱的路子很宽，我们还有很多福音。熬夜就对了，梦不管白天还是午夜。我存在对你来说就是最致命的毒液。哎哎，我转挂的钱来中了哑巴，我的脊椎。血管里流的红牛永远都不值得匹配，学不来的何惧，那就请你坐下乖乖闭嘴。